1: Hello подъезд известный под названием Черный в том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает Черный
0: кот. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. In every podcast, my co-host Kevin Rothrock or I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Matthew Leno about his book, The Kirov Murder in Soviet History. On 1 December 1934, Lenin Nikolayev, a disgruntled Bolshevik party member, shot Sergei Kirov in the back of the head as a Leningrad party boss approached his office in Smolny. The murder sent shockwaves throughout the Soviet leadership, with which Stalin, as its helmsman, used it to concoct a wider conspiracy that fingered oppositionists as the true plotters. By 1937, Stalin had used the murder to initiate full-blown political terror against his former political enemies, military leaders, intellectuals, former classes, and ordinary people. When the smoke cleared in the summer of 1938, 2.5 million people had been arrested and an estimated 700,000 had been shot, including many of the purgers themselves. Kira's murder is considered by most to be the crucial spark that ignited this conflagration of death. But who really killed Kirov? Was Nikolayev a lone gunman? Or did Stalin orchestrate Kirov's murder to eliminate a potential rival and justify mass murder? Until recently, the Stalin did it theory served as the historical consensus despite skepticism from a few. No longer. In his 832 page tome, The Kirov Murder in Soviet History, Matthew Leno rakes a fine tooth comb over the available evidence about the murder to decisively settle the debate and examine its place in stalinist and post-stalinist russia moreover as part of yale's annuals of communism series the book contains 172 translated documents most from soviet archives did stalin plot to kill kirov leno convincingly shows that the most plausible answer to this persistent question is no stalin was guilty of many many things and certainly used the murder to his political advantage, but Kirov's murder was the work of Nikolaev and Nikolaev alone. For more on the murder and the book, here's my interview with Matthew Leno. Hi, Matt.
1: Good afternoon, Sean.
0: Uh, Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Uh, thanks Thanks for joining me to talk about your book, The Kirov Murder and Soviet History.
1: Sure, I'm happy to do it.
0: All right, well, just to start off, uh, why don't you tell a bit about yourself and uh, particularly how you came to write, a, write this book for Yale's Annals of Communism
1: series? Well, um, I'm a 1997 Ph.D. from University of Chicago. Uh, I've worked, um, I'm now at University of Rochester as an associate professor. Before that, I've been at uh, University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts, My first book was on the origins of Stalinist culture in Soviet journalism. It's called Closer to the Masses, Stalinist Culture, Social Revolution, and Soviet Newspapers. And the second book, obviously, is the murder book. I came to this book uh, somewhat by chance. I gave a talk at University of Arkansas, Little Rock, to a public lecture, as part of a public lecture series they have there. And I decided that presenting a detective story was a good idea. So I reviewed the existing literature on the Kirillov murder and I presented this talk. I mentioned to my former advisor, Sheila Fitzpatrick, that I had given this talk. And she then asked if I would uh, submit a review essay for possible publication to, uh, to Journal of Modern History, the review essay uh, I wrote, review of the literature, that is, ended up being called, Did Stalin Kill Kirov and Does It Matter?, which is a little embarrassing because I argued that it didn't really matter. We all knew that Stalin was a mass murderer, and that now I've written, a, you know, an a 800 page book on the topic, <laughs> which I originally said didn't matter. So... At any rate, I wrote this review essay and then I was um, discussing with Jonathan Brent uh, at, the, at the time, the, the lead editor of the Annals of Communism series at Yale University Press. Another project that I was thinking of, book project on Soviet culture related to my first book. And I mentioned I'd done this review essay and we then started talking about the Kyrgyz murder and discussing the possibility of um, of. Authoring mm-hmm. a, a book, which would be a combined document collection and monograph on the murder as part of that series based on documents which Yale had received permission to publish from uh, the archive, which is now called Urgani. It's the uh, Central Party Archive. It's sort of the second level of, of secrecy above uh, what's now called Ergaspi. So that's that's how I came to the book.
0: Did they actually have the majority of documents already kind of available to give you or did you have to track all of these down?
1: The documents had been the folks at Urgani, uh, the Central Party Archive, had, in fact, tracked down and selected already, together with editors at Yale, a number of documents. I, I think it must have been over 300 for a potential publication. And so those existed. Now, I did go – I made – paid three visits, I believe, to the archive to look at other documents related to the murder, which we did not have permission to publish, but which I cite in the book.
0: So uh, did, did the batch of documents they had available, did that include some of the FSB stuff that you have citations to, or did you get access
1: to those? What happened there is that the the FSB – that is the the – present name of the Russian Security Police, former KGB. The FSB citations are simply citations. All of the documents were submitted by the Central Party Archive to Yale, and later, I guess, some of them were transferred to FSB Archi- the FSB Archive. So, they then asked us to cite those as FSB documents. Oh, I see. So you didn't get access, actual access to the FSB. No, FSBA. I did not have access to the, to the FSB
0: archive at all. Okay. I thought maybe you had some sort of magic <laughs> that you no, performed. No,
1: I mean, maybe I should say a, a word about the provenance of a lot of the documents. Um, probably the majority of what Yale showed me and that I was a, you know had right to publish – these were documents released to a a um, investigative commission during the Khrushchev era. First in 1950s, first one operated from 56 to 1957, and um, Khrushchev and the folks around him were very interested in uncovering the truth about the murder. In fact, I I argue in the book that they were interested in implicating Stalin specifically, uh, and so. The, the head of the KGB at that point, um, Ivan Serov, was a Khrushchev ally, and that's pretty clearly demonstrated in a number of ways, particularly at, a, at the June 1957 Central Committee plenum where um, Khrushchev and his allies are able to defeat an attempt to basically overthrow Khrushchev. So, where Sierov supports Khrushchev strongly. At any rate, Shirov released uh, these documents to the Central Committee Investigative Commission, and that is how they ended up in the Central Committee Archive. Hmm. So, so, that's roughly, that's the providence of many of the documents. Mm-hmm. Some, some were released to later investigative commissions. Uh, there were Roughly, there are actually technically five, probably three of them were pretty full blown investigations running through 1967.
0: Yeah, we'll return to those later in the interview because it's an interesting story in and of itself. Okay. Um, but the documents, I mean, I'm interested in how the documents are, how they come into your possession and how they come to light is, a, is an interesting story in and of itself, too. Sure. Um, but let's just get started and, and talk about the, the murder and Sergei Kirov and, and the details of it uh, that you outline in this extensive uh, study. Um, first off, who was Sergei Kirov and, and why is it, uh, what is important to highlight about his early political career uh, before 1925?
1: So he was um he was born in Vyatka province in um in quite a quite an out of the way uh river town. And he was an orphan. He spent a lot of his childhood in an orphanage, although he had a grandmother who was unable to support him. So he really came from the sticks and he was sponsored by local Zemstva professionals. Um, based on recommendations, his education was sponsored by these folks based on recommendations from the orphanage, um, the orphanage matrons who saw him as an exceptional child. So he, he ends up being sent, um, out of his hometown of Erzum to, um, to Kazan eventually to get a higher level technical education. And he is, um, he becomes, uh, he's trained as a, as an engineer. He becomes involved at the age of 15 or 16 in revolutionary reading circles. And this is just before the 1905 revolution. He ends up in, uh, in Tomsk once he's finished his training. During the revolution of 1905, and he he works as a draftsman, I believe, in a city office, although I, I can't remember this precisely. But during the revolution, he during the 1905 revolution, he is active in the social democratic revolutionary organization. Now, later Soviet accounts blew this up blew him up into a leader of the organization and and the scanty records that are left and some memoirs the early memoirs right after his death indicate that in fact he was more or less a rank and file agitator but he does get in enough trouble to be arrested and when he's released he flees he he, he goes to Vladikavkaz in the Caucasus to stay out of the way of the police and he begins working as a journalist eventually he's brought back to Tomsk for trial in 1911 or 1912. I, I won't get into that story. He's acquitted and he becomes a well-known journalist in Vladikavkaz. He is, uh, who's, a, who's a, one of the great experts on his life says, and I agree with her that he was of a, he was of a sort of liberal slash uh, moderate socialist stripe. And, He, although later Soviet accounts identify him as a Bolshevik from before the 1905 revolution, it's doubtful that he was. The Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks in Tomsk worked very closely together during the 1905 revolution. When uh, the February revolution of 1917 occurs, he supports it immediately, as a lot of folks who thought of themselves as progressive-minded uh, liberals or socialists did, probably the majority of that segment of the educated population. And he gets quickly drawn into the revolutionary leadership in the area. He continues to author articles in the press. He, um, he ends up, some point here, he becomes a Bolshevik as the October Revolution approaches. And it appears to be based on his newspaper articles and some records of speeches that he gave at meetings that he he becomes convinced that the Revo- the provisional government has fallen into the hands of reactionaries as the Bolsheviks are claiming and that it cannot cope with the crisis so um, by the time of the october revolution he is he has become a member of the bolshevik party he rises pretty quickly in the organization during the civil war he's involved in getting provisions for the Caucasian military, I'm sorry, for, for Bolshevik military operations in the Caucasus in, in an incredibly complicated civil war situation. He, he becomes known as a some sort of a, a specialist in Caucasian nationalities. Not that he spoke any Caucasian languages, but he is becomes used to dealing with um, Cossacks, um, English, as well as Chechens, and other national groups in the area. He is also involved in 1919 as uh, political commissar, eventually the more or less the head political commissar in the defense of Astrakhan against white forces. So by 1921, he is he's known to Stalin, he's he's known to Lenin. He is coming as a protege of Sergo Jonakidze and he ends up. Uh, by 1924, as secretary of the chief head secretary of the Azerbaijan communist organization. The important thing to realize about Kirov, I think, is that retrospectively, the party presented him as, well, I'm sorry, retrospectively, not the party, but retrospectively, he was presented, particularly by Khrushchev supporters, and by Western commentators as a moderate And indeed, somebody who came to oppose um, extreme Stalinist repression. And the the standard story says that at the 17th Party Congress in 1934, moderates in the party who were opposed to Stalin actually proposed to replace Stalin uh, as general secretary or first secretary with Kirov. And the important thing to realize is this this moderation, this supposed moderation, if you go back and look at the documents from the time, it simply disappears. He was a loyal Stalinist throughout his career. He was attached to Arjanakitze, certainly, and to Stalin's uh, clique, certainly by 1923, if not substantially earlier. And in Baku, he, pre- he presides over... Uh, well, Azerbaijan is still in the, the throes of civil war, roughly speaking between um, the Baku urban population who were, um, there were about one third of them were Armenians and, and one third of them were Jews and, and then were, there were many ethnic Russians as well and obviously Turkic Azerbaijanis. Between those folks in Baku and the Azerbaijan, the, the rural Turkic population, it's a very, very brutal civil war. And um, Kirov is heavily involved in directing that war, indeed, and and also in driving a number of Turks, Turkic folks out of the party organization. Um, Yes.
0: Oh, no, I just wanted to ask. I mean, you you brought up that one of the the arguments that historians who um, claim that that Stalin had Kirov assassinated. Is that he was a critic and a potential opponent of Stalin? And um, but you chart something different, and in particular his role in the, the in Stalin's factional struggles against leftists and then the rightists in right. the uh, late nineteen twenties. Uh, so, what role did Kirov play uh, as one of Stalin's kind of foot soldiers?
1: Well, first of all, he's brought in to uh, he's brought into Leningrad in. Late, the, the last days of 1925, 1926, as part of the the Stalinist uh, takeover of the Leningrad organization from uh, the, the left Zinoviev um, group and Grigory Zinoviev was, of course, head of the Leningrad organization at the time. And this is the last time where party opposition group is able to really publish in major party newspapers. And it is Kirov is brought in in effect to lead this fight, and it's a brutal fight. There, it involves violence. There, there are fist fights, um, and there are you know meetings are packed by both sides. Um, agitators on both sides are beaten up, and but eventually the Stalinists, after about three weeks of struggle, emerge victorious, and Kirov is instrumental in that. Indeed, one of the suspicions that the folks around Stalin have immediately after Kirov's assassination is of course that former Zinovievites who were still throughout the Leningrad organization killed Kirov. So um, there is during the the period of the right opposition 1928 1929 the right opposition as you know were were folks who were opposed to the shift in policy, economic policy against the peasants that was occurring in which Stalin eventually endorsed. And eventually they were opposed to forced collectivization of the peasantry once that gets going. And generally speaking, they supported the the less centralized, uh, more market-oriented econ- economics of the new economic policy of the 1920s, as opposed to what becomes a Stalinist drive for greater central control, planning, and forced collectivization of the peasantry. Now, isolated, particularly uh, Amy Knight in her book, Who Killed Kirov, takes isolated bits and pieces of Kirov's notes taken at party meetings and um, particular quotations that he made, uh, quotes he made in largely early 1928, which, taken out of context, seemed to demonstrate, quote-unquote, moderation. But if you track all of these comments, including the notes at party congresses and, and conferences, it turns out that Kirov was following Stalin's line incredibly closely. And it needs to be understood that Stalin's line was not always the hardest line, and particularly rhetorically, Stalin often sounded like a relative moderate. So in late in early 1928, for example, um, for a while, Stalin is talking about um, the need to back off from forced grain requisitioning of the peasants and from the peasants. And um, at this point, Kirov shifts exactly to the Stalinist line. And there were a number of rightists in Leningrad in 1928, 1929. Some of the most prominent rightists were high up in that organization. Kirov did not have absolute control of that organization. Party politics were much looser at this point. And he was trying to keep control of the organization for Stalin while playing a double game, playing off rightists against leftists within the organization. And he's very, very good at this. And he, in the process, he's also very good at sticking to exactly what Stalin's line or the so-called central committee line of the moment is. So I argue that, in fact, um, he's a completely loyal Stalinist during this period, which, again, some folks, including Knight, argue is a moment when he, his moderation begins to appear and he begins to split from Stalin. Mm-hmm. So you would, you would, it's basically as a kind of adept politician
0: in considering the context he's, he's in in Leningrad, he has to kind of, as you said, play both sides in order to maintain his own position uh, or at least not to lose control of the situation uh, for Stalin.
1: That's right. And one of the difficulties of, of presenting this general argument about the fact about Kirill being a loyal Stalinist is that one has to look at the individual pieces of evidence that have been offered, suggesting that he was a moderate. One has to place each one of them in context. And this is the kind, this is one of the reasons the book runs long, because to refute these kinds of arguments, one has to go after the pieces of evidence. So for example, there's a, there are notes, we have Kirov's notes from a June 1930, I believe it was a Central Committee um, conference, where the notes, there's one sentence of the notes where he, he writes the notes says something like, um, maybe Bukharin was right or not. And Knight interprets that, Bukharin, the most prominent writist. Knight interprets that as a suggestion that, in fact, Kirov was thinking maybe the writists were correct. In fact, if you look at Alexei Rykov's speech, another rightist who is recanting, you find that what Kirov is doing is transcribing, more or less in quick notes, that speech in which Rykov says maybe Bukharin was right, but actually probably he was wrong. So that's the level of detail one has to go to and that's why, you know, actually if, if you're skeptical, you need to read the book. <laughs> yeah, it, and I think you do
0: a good job in laying out all of the claims of those who, who, who try to put Kirov forward as either um, basically killed by Stalin for, you know, he's a potential opponent or a potential moderate. Um, you do – the book is, is very good in kind of laying out those kind of historiographic debates and, and you are really – kind engaging in a in an uphill battle because the line the historical consensus for so long outside of a few uh, select people has been that Stalin indeed had Kirov murdered um, yeah. for whatever reason uh, that may be um, what about Kirov's personal relationship with Stalin I mean one of the things that that I found interesting is that during these these struggles in in leningrad Stalin is constantly, taking the train up to Leningrad. Sometimes he's staying in Kirov's apartment. What can you say about their personal relationship?
1: So this is an area that's actually very hard to get at because Kirov was made into a martyr after the murder, first by Stalin himself, and later the Khrushchevites made him into a different kind of martyr. But they were able to, the Khrushchevites were using the fact that Kierdov already was a martyr and a hero with exaggerated positive qualities. So in the in this process of, of use of Kierdov's memory, all sorts of memoirs are published by folks on, about Kierdov's relationship with Stalin, the, the touch, I'm sorry, on Kierdov's relationship with Stalin. And... During the Stalin era, of course, these memoirs talk about how close he was to Stalin and how they were such great personal friends. And there were Stalinists who, as soon as Perestroika begins, for example, one of Stalin's old bodyguards, who who began, again, repeating this line. During the Khrushchev era, of course, um, folks who were writing letters to the Central Committee, long after the event, some some of them claimed to remember moments of tension. Many others do not. So what we can track is that Stalin stayed at Kirov's apartment in Leningrad, uh, I think, two or three times. It's, it's been over four years since I worked on the manuscript, so I can't remember precisely. But he, he does stay in Kirov's apartment two or three times. He Kirov vacations with him several times uh, on, in Sochi on the Black Sea. Including in the summer of 1934, and Kirov also visits him at his dacha in Zubalova. So he was; they were probably, you know, he was one of the party leaders outside Moscow. Stalin had a good deal of interaction with, and a lot of this could simply have been um, political. Kirov was head of the number two party organization in the country, and by um, by the early 30s, he's a full member of the Politburo. So there was a personal relationship. It's hard to gauge exactly how close it was, especially given that um, Stalin was extraordinarily cagey and capable of, of showing different faces. And Kirov himself was quite a cagey guy. So, you know, it's in, in terms of evaluating the, pro, the, the possibility that Stalin murdered Kirov, there's actually not much here for us. I thought one of the
0: interesting moments is um, Kirov uh, repeatedly trying to uh, prevent being transferred, uh, being transferred to Moscow, for for example, and, and basically a compromise uh, being kind of hammered out, where he would travel to, he would be you know, on in the Polybryo and he would go back and forth, but he would still maintain his position and his residence in Leningrad. So I, I found it interesting, to, even though he rises up very fast, he seems to, at the same time, kind of um, Buck being promoted
1: too high up, right? So this is this is important because it does fit within to one of the better arguments uh, for tension, for serious tension between Stalin and Kirov, and, and hence I suppose for the murder as a solution for Stalin. It does appear that Kirov was, from private letters to his wife, it appears that Kirov was genuinely reluctant, in part, to take on responsibilities. Uh, further responsibilities, although this this may have been also directed at his wife who, who didn't like him doing this, but he expresses reluctance to move from Baku to Leningrad and then seems to succumb to pressure to do that and to lead the fight against the Zinovievites. And the, the key moment I think you're referring to here is in the summer, the spring and summer of 1934, and there is a complicated situation developing in the leningrad organization and its relation to stalin it is, it's a little hard to track but what it looks like first of all this the stalin the stalinist leadership of the security police had con had concluded that the head of the leningrad uh, nkvd the security police philip medved was incompetent and particularly at this point After forced collectivization and the mass influx of Kulaks into the prison and camp system, the party, they they were running out of room. The leadership was running out of room in the camp system. It was overburdened. And for other reasons, they, they wanted to move away from mass operations where you round up an entire class of people and deport or imprison them to more targeted kind of repression where you have a lot of informers among in suspicious circles and they using these informers you you are able to pick up specific individuals and so there's a sense in which this is a ratcheting down of repression but really what the what's down in the security police leadership want is is more of a scalpel dealing with opposition with more of a scalpel than a hammer and medved is viewed as as incompetent in making this transition There were probably also personal politics involved, which I won't get into. So they think Medvedev is incompetent. They also, um, Stalin wants Kirillov moved to Moscow. And it is, he wants him promoted, presumably, and I think this, because he views him as loyal and capable, and it's pretty clear that he does, he also probably wants, he he may feel that Kirillov is putting down um, roots. In Leningrad, he wants to shake up the organization some and um, which is pretty standard operating procedure. He for Stalin, there was also by August of 1934, Stalin had turned again against the Zinovievites, who he had sort of allowed to come some back into party life. And uh, particularly after a particular article Zinoviev published is, and it may be that Medved, um, with Kirov's say so was um, bucking some bucking calls for the arrest of some of the Zinovievites. Um, it actually looks more to me like Medved was bucking this, and Kirov was just saying we got to check carefully with Stalin. But at any rate, you put all this together, and there it, there is tension apparently between Kirov and Stalin in the summer of thirty four. But I mean, there's two points about this. First, Oleg Kluyevnuk has argued exactly about this kind of tension, and in the Kirov case that this kind of tension about transfers was absolutely standard operating procedure well into the 1930s. Uh, or Jonah Kiedze has a big go-round with Stalin about a transfer. Yeah, you
0: point out that it could, it, it causes a lot of problems because first off, if you if someone moves, they usually bring all of their, their people with them into a new organization. It creates a lot of scandal and infighting. It, you can get more responsibility based on top of the responsibilities that these guys have. I mean, you point out, and it's quite regular amongst these party leaders, that Kirov has a kind of nervous breakdown at some point and has to go on leave because the the pressure on top of his head in managing Leningrad is so heavy.
1: Right, and it's I, this um, Kielina, who knows this stuff well, does talk about, uh, what looks like, um, not quite a nervous breakdown, but a situation where he has to take a a long vacation in the winter of 33, 34. And this is actually before the real tension about his move developed. So I don't attribute it to the tension about the move specifically, but about the difficulties of running the organization. Well, let's kind of jump ahead to
0: the murder itself. So Kirov is murdered, um, on December 1, 1934. And, um, Describe the scene of the crime uh, through the the documents that you have of, of witness interrogations, and and in particular, what light do they shed on uh, what you call the myths, inconsistencies, and loose ends of the murder?
1: So first, let's talk about what a the way I just I I describe the scene of the crime in the book, based on documents of the original. Um, investigation in the mur- in the days af- days and weeks after the murder the murder was on december 1st 1934. So how did i get these documents well they were released again from the kgb to the central committee investigative commissions in the late 50s now one might suppose that these documents are um, unreliable that the kgb was releasing selected documents even forging one might imagine But I have a specific reason, which we'll get to sort of the punchline of the book for believing strongly that they're genuine. Actually, more than one reason. Anyway, what these documents show is that um, the assassin, Leonid Nikolaev, was a um, Communist Party member of genuine lower class extraction who had had difficulties in every party organization he'd worked in and he'd been ostracized and among his he he writes he becomes a a graphomaniac really in by the early 1930s but particularly in the years from the winter of 30 the months after the winter of 33 34 he um so we have a lot of his diaries and uh, he is fired from the institute of party history where he was working and, and he goes through about Thirteen jobs between um, I think 1924 and the murder. He is fired from the Institute of Party History, and he is his his party membership is revoked. Although on appeal, he gets the membership returned, but he is not rehired. And this sends him into uh, a spiral of resentment, increasing resentment and depression. And we can track in his diaries uh, how. He's actually moves towards more drastic action from writing letters to the Central Committee and Kirov to considering an act of violence and eventually focusing on Kirov as a target. Um, The first few days of interrogation, during the first few days of interrogation, Nikolaev himself insists that he acted alone. Indeed, he is um, proud of it. And there are also what look like, well, accounts from reliable eyewitnesses suggesting that when they were driving him around Leningrad, he was screaming out the window of the car. Um, it's, you know, remember me, it's I, Nikolaev, I killed Kirov. Um, other, his relatives and neighbors who were interrogated in the immediate aftermath of the assassination report that he he was a loner, um, he seemed strange and difficult. But the, the picture that emerges from the interrogation is of uh, a psychologically disturbed lone gunman. Then um, Stalin comes in to Stalin comes into Leningrad the morning after the murder with a huge entourage. And he's there until the evening of December 3rd, 4th. So he's there for about 36 hours and um, later witnesses, police who survived, who were working on the investigation, several claim or at least two of them claim that. Somewhere on December 2nd or 3rd, Stalin says the murderer must have been a Zinovievite. So Stalin, of course, was highly suspicious of the oppositionists, as we know. He, I do believe that he was a particularly vengeful, suspicious personality. And uh, so, of course, his, his move is going to be to blame the Zinovievites. And there is a lot of people do think the Zinovievites were behind it because Kirov had played a key role in crushing them. So Salon apparently gives a, a, a directive to his security, the, the folks in charge of the investigation saying, look for the murderer among the Zenoviites. It is on December 4th under interrogation. And one, one assumes these interrogations involved, if not physical coercion, certainly sleep deprivation and, um, and those co- sort of tactics. By December 4th, the the interrogators have zinoviev mentioning certain i'm sorry not zinoviev these the and mentioning certain mid-level officials in leningrad who were former zinovievites who he'd had contact with but denying that they had anything to do with the murder by december 6th they have him uh, claiming that certain of them were involved in planning the murder on December seventh, according to Kirillina, who's seen documents I have not seen, uh, but who's a, a very reliable historian, he attempts suicide. And um, he, and after that suicide attempt, the the interrogators begin to get from him larger and larger, um, larger and larger conspiracy stories. So they choose basically. 14 people, um, I believe one or two of whom were neighbors, simply, and a number of the others were uh, Komsomol officials and former Komsomol officials with a, with a Zinovievite record from 1925-26. And they they get Nikolaev to implicate these folks, and they will put him on trial, um, I think it's uh, December 29. 29th. right? Um, so roughly speaking, the, the scene of the crime, the descriptions of the crime scene itself, um, Nikolaev is able to get onto the third floor of Smolny where Kirov's offices were because all you needed was a party card to get access. You just needed to show your card. So he showed his card. There is, um, there is evidence in his diary that he has been tracking Kirov for probably a month. And um, he was picked up by the police in October once, only once, almost certainly unarmed, um, for tracking Kirov. Now, at this point, folks would try, folks, as with many party leaders, folks would approach party leaders in an attempt to get, um, get jobs or get favors or, or appeal to them. And certainly, Nikolaev may have been doing this, and certainly that's how the guards interpreted it. You also give some
0: indication too that Kirov um, himself wasn't entirely comfortable with the close security that was put around him by Stalin.
1: No, a number, a number of, um, like a number of party leaders, um, Kirov did not like close security, and he insisted that um, that the guards keep a distance, that he have fewer guards, and sometimes he would escape from them. And um, Pauker, who was the head of the of the guard service in in moscow is sort of distractedly begging stalin to tell kirov he's got to he, he's got to tell to tell kirov to to accept more stringent security cautions because Pauker doesn't want a shot taken at him so at any rate and this is at any rate um so nikolaev gets onto the third floor of Smolny and um he was there probably trying to get tickets for a meeting Kirov was going to speak at that night. And he has, at this point, a revolver with him. And um, by chance, you know, he's hanging around Smalny trying to get these tickets. And presumably he was thinking of an assassination temp- attempt at the meeting. There's Kirov in the hallway. Kirov walks past him. Nikolaev trails him and um couple of people see Nikolaev in the hall. The hall is not empty. There's people in and out of it. Um, Kirov turns a quarter to- corner towards his office. Nikolaev speeds up and shoots him right in the back of the head from um, probably two or three meters away. And um, Kirov is killed instantly. Uh, immediately, um, folks come out of doors around the offices. Um, they report seeing Nikolaev screaming and waving his pistol. Um, An electrician who's doing work um, actually attacks Nikolaev and knocks him over, or it's unclear what happens. Nikolaev may have collapsed on his own. Um, At any rate, he also appears to try and kill himself. He fires a second shot wildly um, and misses himself, and he's apprehended right there, and he's immediately identified. He has identification papers on him
0: yeah it's it's one of those great uh, kind of you know almost like the Robert Kennedy assassination too uh That's where good point. yeah where you do have a lot of people around and it's just kind of well and I guess in this case Nikolaev just got lucky uh that Kirov passed him when he did and he was able to just walk up behind him and shoot him
1: and that that said he got lucky because he had been tracking him for a while right so, right yeah
0: now one of the Stalin's immediate responses besides kind of gathering his entourage and going to Leningrad, was uh, to draft the infamous law of December 1st. Um, right. What was this law? Uh, why is it significant? And, and what was Stalin's logic behind
1: uh, behind this move? So the law um, set up uh, a system of military tribunals that could um, try cases of counter-revolutionary terrorism, terrorism, um, very rapidly. Um, there was no right to counsel and um, executions could be carried out immediately following the verdict without right of appeal. So, and this, in, in fact, this might be surprising to people, but there, there was a system of trial in the Soviet Union, which involved at this time, which involved more regular procedures. And so the whole prosecutorial apparatus is bypassed in favor of these um, military collegium collegia i guess i should say and so a system of of summary trials with kangaroo courts and summary executions is set up now this is often looked upon as evidence that of what stalin of what stalin of stalin using the murder to immediately set up the mechanism for what later becomes the great terror And the idea is that he does it so fast. The law is actually issued on December 4th. Some folks claim it was drafted on the evening of December 1st and completed then, although that's not quite clear. Anyway, the notion is that Stalin drafted this so fast that the whole thing had to be premeditated. In fact, uh, I demonstrate in the book that plans for these kinds of tribunals had been filed since 1927 following the assassination of, uh, I believe, the Soviet ambassador in Poland. And that, in fact, this kind of response to um, an act of terror against the regime was standard operating procedure. And there's absolutely nothing surprising about this decree appearing. And it would not have taken long to draft. This was something, these kinds of decrees were something that party and police officials had had considered before. Moreover, the mass terror does not begin until the summer of 1937, nor does the the first great show trial begin until August of 36, which would lead one to question why the long time delay? If this was a premeditated act intended to lead to large-scale terror, why the
0: time lapse? Yeah, I always thought of this. this is, I always find this law incredibly interesting um, just because in, to kind of think of it, you have to put yourself in, in Stalin's shoes in a way and thinking a top leader has been shot in the right. back of the head. You, don't, you already are in a situation where you believe your control over the country is quite tenuous. Considering collectivization and and the the way of um, industrialization is just grinding the population to the working population to the ground, and when this happens, you kind of as Bolsheviks tended to do even during during the civil war, they lash out. I mean, right after say the attempt on on Lenin, it, it's the same the same thing. They, this kind of lashing out of against real and perceived enemies. Um, And I always found this an interesting response to think about, especially since the law itself sets up legal mechanisms for what happens a few years down the road that one may not even intend or even conceive of at the time.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other thing we have to remember is just what a terrifying shock this was for the party leadership. And there is, so, Kirov is the first Politburo member since Lenin in 1918, I believe, to take a bullet, and he's the only one who's ever assassinated. And so this is utterly shocking to the leadership. And there is strong evidence that Stalin's security has strengthened a lot following this murder. And the so called Kremlin cases of early 1935 appear to be aimed at, you know, from the view, point of view of Stalin, at cleaning out the moscow security his guard of people he views as possible enemies so i would argue that there's good evidence that the murder genuinely terrified the party leadership including stalin
0: yeah i find that a, a quite convincing at least to, un, to understand the generation of this law the rapidity i mean you point out also that the the wording is even a bit vague in the draft um before it's kind of you know, uh, retroactively kind of passed and then published a few days later. Um, so it's it, it, it's always, it, since this, I, I see this law as incredibly important just for the, the legal mechanism for allowing for you know, mass execution um, without any trial or anything.
1: Yes, although there had been tribunals like this set up during collectivization as well. So again, it's not without precedent, but yes, it is important, obviously, for the terror.
0: Yeah, and another interesting thing along this line is you you point out at one point um, it, the use of extraordinary measures like the law on December first and other use of tribunals and, and operations in, in previous years didn't necessarily contradict a strengthening of legality. It, am I mis, misunderstanding you on that? Where you also point out that the increase of surveillance was a means to kind of refine the legal system rather than.
1: Uh, bucket in a way. Yes. So um there does there is this apparent um paradox going on in let's say 33 to 35 where on the one hand it appears that um, party leaders are seeking to uh regularize the legal system and to create regular procedures. On the other hand, something that that Lenin calls and um, something that's called, I don't know in this period whether it's in this period or not, but it's called sometimes revolutionary legality or socialist legality. And on the other hand, well, first of all, I think that goes together with what I said earlier about surveillance and what you said. In other words, party leadership is looking for tighter control of, of, um, well, let's say finer grained monitoring of opposition and tighter control of the legal system. But there is absolutely no contradiction with party practice in times of crisis, because in times of crisis, you resort to extraordinary measures. So you just have you just have the the drive for revolutionary legality, which is for, you know, everyday functioning. And then you have the right to extraordinary measures, which is always reserved to the
0: ship. Now, how did Kirov's murder set the stage for, and, and how was it used during the Great Terror?
1: So, in the wake of the murder, um, there are repressions. For, well, the response to the regime is pretty standard. Immediately, they declare in the couple of days following the murder that um, it was the work of an enemy of the working class, and they execute more than 100, I believe, um, so-called prisoners who were charged with being white emigres, you know, white guardists, this kind of thing. They go after the Zinovievites in Leningrad. They purge um, many of them from the party apparatus in Leningrad, or I should say former Zinovievites or suspected Zinovievites. Um, about, aside from the 14 folks executed, uh, the 13 executed together with Nikolaev, um, another hundred or so in Moscow and Leningrad, including Zinoviev and his ally Lev Kamenev, are put on trial and given prison terms of various lengths. Um, There's several thousand people, I believe, in the following months uh, exiled from Leningrad. What happens in, in the broadest sense is, uh, but, but I should note that these repressions are nothing like the scale of, of what develops in 1937. So what appears... There appears to be a gradual process of, of of the spreading of repression. First, in throughout much of 1935, it's targeted against uh, leftists, former Trotskyites, and former Zinovievites. Um, in the meantime, Zinoviev and Kamenev are apparently being worked on by the security police, and it takes them. My the, what I believe the scenario to be, and this is this is hypothetical, is that. It takes the security police about a year and a half to soften up Kamenev and Zinoviev um, well enough for a show trial, which may not even have been projected to start with. But at any rate, the police were were trying to get confessions of wider conspiracy out of them. In, in, Jan, in the January 35 show trial that I mentioned immediately after the murder, all they confessed to is Moral culpability because they had fomented hatred of Stalin. In um, August of thirty-six, they are put on trial uh, with a, with associates for conspiring to murder Kirov and leading a wide-ranging conspiracy to murder him, and they confess and are executed. So, I I my I believe that what happens here is that it takes a year and a half before the party the police get what the leadership needs uh, for a show trial. And, and these show trials were prepared very carefully. Um, one of the, okay, so at any rate, there's a, there's a gradual process of ratcheting up of repression. It spreads to, the, to what former white oppositionists by late 1936. And there's a January 37 show trial of lower level rightist leaders and this show trial Bruits a much larger conspiracy Than the August 36 show trial Involving um, involving rightists And leftists And ovioites, Trotskyites And so on And then um, In the late spring And summer of 1937 uh, All sorts of Party Lower middle level Lower level Party leaders Are being hauled in Provincial party secretaries Charged with um, conspiracy to murder Kirov and Stalin and a number of other leaders. And during this period, I think it's in April of 37, I'm not sure, um, Nikolai Bukhar and, and Alexei Rykoff, the most prominent leaders of the right opposition, are arrested and they'll be put on trial in March of 1938.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting in this process that you have the police concocting cases to kind of broaden this this murder out to an unimaginable conspiracy involving all of these former oppositionists, but uh, you, you note at the same time, the, the, the murder kind of triggers, or at least the pinning it, it on Zynovianists in, in 35, 34, 35, it sends off a kind of wave of denunciation throughout lower party organizations.: That's right. And, and it, I would imagine that that would also feed in some way into a kind of more paranoid situation where the, the maybe, I don't know if I could say an unintended consequence, but a consequence nonetheless that perhaps this explosion of denunciation feeds into even the, the effort to concoct a wider conspiracy.
1: It does feed into that. And I, want, I think this is the time to note that um, this book is in no way an exoneration of Stalin. Okay. We know that Stalin was a mass murderer responsible for the deaths of millions and he uses this murder in the most cynical way to target his opponents. And over time, he expands the circle of those he's targeting. And he's, so he's clearly, in the aftermath of the murder, ultimately culpable in, in political use of the murder to justify mass murder, states' mass murder. Um, and, but I agree completely that there was a from below component. Once the murder happens and Stalin begins using it, um, frightened people in lower-level party organizations begin denouncing one another, and that contributes to the spread of the terror. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I think it's important to know in, in Any time you talk about the terror, that there are many processes going on that have their own vectors that may be connected in, in certain ways, but they have their own vector. So you have Stalin, kind of, you know, as you say, cynically plotting the elimination of his his former opposition. Uh, you have the mass operations going on against recidivists and former class enemies, et cetera, in, in a kind of, you know, widespread uh, arrest and, and uh, exile and ex- execution. And then you have this kind of from below denunciation um, component that's going on. It's a real mess, but I think it's important for people to understand and thinking about what happens in these, this, you know, 37, 38.
1: Absolutely, and I want to add to that when i when I think about the state and stalin sponsored part of the terror, and it is ultimately it's directed from above although there was a, there is a substantial component of from below hysteria and denunciation i th- I think and I'm just reiterating what you said that I think about the broadest categorization I think about two two categories one is the um Stalin's taking out of former political opponents, people he views as potential political opponents, much of the higher-level party leadership. And that is what he, he uses, the Kyrgyz murder directly uh, as a tool to do that. And then there are the mass operations, which began in June of, 19, of 1937, which you referenced, um, which are against, quote-unquote, suspect national minority groups, former kulaks, even city vagrants, um, And my interpretation of the mass operations is that it's a return to the hammer. Stalin Stalin is in a pre-war situation. Um, He is paranoid and he's seeing, in his own mind anyway, he's seeing increasing evidence of um, threats to the regime. And I won't get into that dynamic. And so eventually he decides that the scalpel isn't working. And he throws up his hands and just starts to crush everybody he can imagine would be an opponent or, or a traitor in time of war with a hammer. Mm-hmm. And this is what Molotov essentially
0: says in the 70s, right? That we basically feared a fifth column. We That's knew we right. were going to war, and we had a suspicion that elements in the military, elements in society wouldn't fight and that should have been very clear to them considering in the last war scare in 27 they were getting regular reports from the police saying people weren't going to fight for the Soviet regime right um so it it certainly feeds into that dynamic now yeah. one of the things you you note, note is that kirov right after his his murder there's an extensive campaign to turn kirov into a martyr and you've previously mentioned this um now what was the response of the public to this and and how did they how did the public view uh, the murder, um, especially through the evidence we have of rumors and conspiracy theories circulating at the time.
1: Right. So what we so the kind of documents are available are on this are mostly um, intelligence reports on popular mood and specific criminal prosecution records. And the intelligence reports come from the secret police. They also come from the network of party agitators channeled through the party information department. And also uh, they can be, these things can be charted through um, letters to authorities, particularly anonymous letters. Now I should reference the work that both Leslie Rimmel and Sarah Davies have done with these documents and trying to look at popular mood. And I relied a lot on their work. So, so the the bottom line is we don't know the frequency of the negative of, of the different responses to the murder. So we don't know what percentage of the population was responding how. The official response, as in you know the the official popular response as presented in the newspapers, of course, was supposed to be universal grief, um, determination to fight on against the class enemy and win, and so on. And but but as it turns out, of course, if you look, quote unquote, below um, the official presentation, there's a lot of there's a lot of indifference. There's a lot of hostility towards the party. And um, people are the, the kind of reactions recorded, for example, it's fairly common for for people to just be saying, who cares? Right. I'm not the population of Leningrad was. You know they they weren't starving, but they they were being fed at a level sometimes approaching they were approaching malnutrition, and um, and then there are there are records which is completely unsurprising to me. There are records, for example, of workers would be playing dominoes in the back during the official morning meeting at the factory. Morning is an M O U R I N G, and then there are responses that are outright hostility um there is a there's a woman recorded for example as saying um you know he got he was he was fat and that's one less that's one less guy eating the rations and there are there are other hostile responses some of which i'm not you know there's a report that peasant women were made up the song that um something like they killed cured we'll kill Stalin. i'm a little I use it in the book, but I'm a little more dubious about that. It sounds like something the secret police made up. Right, right, because they certainly
0: have an interest in kind of sending up these negative rep- – I mean all of these reports are kind of what I call cesspools of negativity. I mean you get the impression right. that you know nothing is going right in that, that country, which in some cases may be the case, but um, you get a certainly skewed picture.
1: That's right, you do. And so um, what I try to argue, and I've used these sources elsewhere, is that, you know, one can at least postulate, and also one can at least postulate pretty high levels of discontent, especially given the police repression and the awareness of informers, and that, you know, there there is some corroborative evidence by consuls, in foreign consuls in Leningrad and, and emigrant memoirs. I want to move in to talk about the fact
0: that after Stalin's death, as you mentioned, the Kirov cases reopened and, and you kind of focus on three times. So 56 to 57, then again 1960 to 61, and then again 61 to 67. Now what 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 are the purpose of these reinvestigations, and, and what did they establish?
1: So the the 56-57 investigation was politically complicated. I argue, and I, obviously I don't have time to review the evidence here, that Khrushchev and his allies were very interested already in implicating Stalin in Kirillov's murder, but they had to proceed very carefully because former Stalinists in the leadership, um, Molotov, Kaganovich in particular, but also uh, Varashilov, who's a weaker read, um, that these folks still had a lot of power, and um, Malyankov, of course, as well, um, although he's he's in the background, I think, after 54. These folks still had a lot of power. Khrushchev could not just come out directly and um, and implicates Stalin in the murder. So. The commission, the investigative commission is set up at about the same time as the party leadership makes a decision to um, allow Kirov to give um, geez, allow Khrushchev to give this the so-called secret speech um, talking about some of Stalin's inadequacies and denouncing his crime, some of his crimes and so this is January February of 56 if I remember correctly and but the setting up of the commission is, is it's debated and the secret speech business is not debated there's just some debate about how measure you know how much should be revealed because it might undermine the, the authority of the party, obviously with Molotov and in particular saying we need to be very careful. But there is substantial debate on the investigative commission. And then probably as a compromise or a SOP, Molotov is actually put in charge of the commission. And at the same time, less prominent names, younger guys who were clearly uh, Khrushchev allies are put on the commission as well. So there's going to be, it's going to be a site of contestation. and Um, I argue that the documentation was being fed to the commission by Ivan Serov, who was Khrushchev's head of the secret police and who I argue, I I think convincingly was, was on Khrushchev's side. Um, I think Khrushchev and Serov were looking for something to implicate Stalin, because that would be, if you could implicate Stalin in the death of a martyr, you could, um, you know, obviously this would undermine the positions of Khrushchev's political opponents. And um, the commission eventually finds no evidence of a conspiracy. And it's clear we, we have evidence that Khrushchev comes back to them a couple of times saying, but isn't this suspicious or isn't that suspicious? So and then in June of 1957, at which point the, the, the commission is concluding its work, with a verdict that Stalin wasn't involved, there is this attempt to overthrow Khrushchev, uh, which starts in the Politburo, and then Khrushchev is able to call a Central Committee plenum, bring in a bunch of Central Committee members from the provinces, and um, basically kick Molotov and Kaganovich and their allies out of the leadership. If you, we have the stenographic report of of both the Politburo um, deliberations and the Central Committee plenum that occurs in this during this period. And um, everything is laid at Stalin's feet. The terror is discussed, frankly. The number of victims within the party and even outside the party is discussed, frankly. Molotov and Kaganovich are taxed with all of these crimes. And yet, they have nothing. If, if, if they had something at that point indicating Stalin had murdered Kirov, they would have used it. They're using everything else. And... All they get is a hint from one guy who says, Kirov's ghost hangs on Molotov. And, and Khrushchev, I think, at some point says, Kirov's death is still suspicious, but they don't have anything. 61, um, the investigation is renewed in late 1960, and Khrushchev is moving on to a, a different period where he's, he's really now trying to establish himself as... The avatar of a new humanitarian socialism. And part of this is international. Um, he is, the Sino Soviet split is underway, and Mao is accusing Khrushchev of not being a real revolutionary, and the Soviets are coming back and accusing Mao. Well, they will accuse Mao of having a cult of personality. For quite a while, they use Enver Hosha of Albania as sort of the, uh, the proxy for Mao, talking about his cult of personality. So there's an international context to this. Um, Khrushchev, so the investigation is renewed. There's another reason it's renewed, I believe also. The party had an acute problem with with legitimacy. The terror threatened the legitimacy of the party um, because it was such a crime and because the party indeed attacked itself. So what to do with this? Well, one way to fix this, um, to create a wor- usable history for the party, is to put, um, is to blame everything on Stalin and claim that there was a cohort of loyal Leninists who opposed Stalin and, um, and fought for, for true communism. And this is a history that they're secretly, within the Central Committee, Khrushchev is trying to construct or he has people his people trying to construct it and this investigative commission I've I've seen many of the records it's rather than being based on documentation from 34 a lot of it is based on documentation from 37 38 interrogations which aimed at implicating uh, creating a much larger conspiracy to murder kirov and also they interview many many people Who were witnesses or purported witnesses of the of um, the murder, and also um, who attended the 17th Party Congress, where the move supposedly to replace Stalin with Kirov happened. Um, And they get a very mixed bag of uh, of evidence from these folks. There are a lot of people from the 17th Party Congress, and there were a number of surviving delegates, even though many were executed in the Terror. Um, the majority of them actually say, I don't remember any story, any rumors about this stuff, nor of many votes against Stalin. They get one guy by the name of Verhoeven to initially, after his first interrogation, or not interrogation, I guess it'd be better to call him an interview. After his first interview, the second interview, he says, yeah, I seem to remember because I was part of the counting commission or the head of it, there were maybe 125 votes against Stalin. Um, a number of witnesses say, I heard of three to six votes against Stalin, which surprised me. And in fact, there were three, according to the unsealed records of the counting commission, three votes against Stalin. Um, but the myth that there were between there were around 250 to 300 votes against Stalin seems to come out of the testimony of this one guy. Verhobeck. And um, basically, if you look at accounts of the murder itself, um, you're often I'm able to test witnesses' reliability by comparing what they say about other things to the archival record, and looking at things they've said before. People whose testimony has changed over time. So, um, basically, the testimony. It turns out, and that the people who are claiming that they have evidence of a large conspiracy can can generally be proven or. or shown in probability to be unreliable. And, and the, the, the narrators who there's good evidence are, um, are more reliable, or generally report, are generally are not reporting evidence. But, um, and of course, the 37, 38 um, evidence, which was extracted under severe torture and often took months, um, is completely bogus, but it's used to suggest for example, that Nikolaev uh, was not detained once unarmed, but was detained three, four, seven times armed and each time released by the security police. Mm-hmm. To suggest that it was all a plot from Stalin. Right. And um, a a report is then produced, which remains top secret and is never released, um, That and which I was able to see, uh, albeit for three hours, but I managed to read through it. <laughs> um, a report is produced saying that Stalin— killed Kirov. And without, um, I don't have time here, but the report, it's remarkable how bogus the report is and and how how the evidence is manufactured, self-contradictory, unreliable. And so it appears then, the, the lady who headed this investigative commission, Olga Shatunovskaya, Felt later, and Perry and, and Perestroika said openly, often, that Stalinists within the leadership had blocked the release of this report. And in fact, again, based on actually published archival documents, um, it looks like people who were loyal Khrushchevites and who were involved in um, people, people like Serduk, who were actually involved closely in preparing secret documents that exposed the entire terror. That it was these folks who blocked, who, who decided this, this was not a good idea to release. And in my sense, based on indirect evidence, is that it was probably some combination of concern for the authority of the party, but also the sense that Shatuniskaya had done an incredibly poor, unprofessional job. And, and the third commission in sixty-seven is not worth today talking about. Um, some people would find it suspect because it's after Khrushchev's overthrow. It confirms the basically the findings of the fifty-six, fifty-seven commission. Uh, I see conspiracy.
0: Well, this sh- this is probably a kind of question that doesn't need to be asked, but I'm going to ask it anyways. So, was Stalin behind Kerov's
1: murder? Um, I think that as I think that the answer is no. And I, you know, I feel 99% sure of that. You can't, obviously we'll never be able to prove he wasn't, but, and, and um, yeah, so that's my, that's my, that's my conclusion. And and if I could, I don't know how much further you want to go here, but I do, this may be time to mention uh, the evidence that I think ICE is the case. So if we look at the 5657 document release from the KGB, um, it indicates a lone gunman, and people, folks might argue, and I indeed um, considered this possibility strongly for quite a while myself, that the document release was selective; it was designed to cover for Stalin. Um, and documents were eliminated beforehand. This kind of thing. Now, I considered, as I thought more about it and understood the political context, I considered this unlikely because Sierdov was in charge of the FSB, and I came to consider, I came to see that he was a close Khrushchev ally, and that Khrushchev really wanted to implicate Stalin. However, there is even more important evidence um, which has been ignored, even though folks knew about it by uh, by historians previously. In 1938, the head of the Far Eastern NKVD, Genrich Yushkov, defects to Japan. He crosses the Manchurian border because he realized you know he has been recalled to Moscow and he realizes that this means his, his head's on the block. It turns out that Lyushkov was, and we see this in the archival records, probably the second in command of the December 1934 investigation of the Kirov murder immediately afterwards. The Japanese Keep Yushkov basically under house arrest. Japanese um, military intelligence uses him as a source on the Soviet Union until 45, when they execute him. And um, most of their records were burned, but um, they there are some they released to U.S. intelligence in 1938. And um, this. And the memoirs, the, the memories of Japanese officers who handled Yushkov, indicate that he was an incredibly reliable witness. Um, he recalled the, he, he describes a meeting with Stalin, for example, on July, uh, I can't remember the exact date, June or, June or July of 1937 when he's being transferred to the Far East. and Stalin gives him top secret instructions. He's going to have to clean out the NKVD there. If we look at Stalin's appointment book, which we now have there, Lishkov is on exactly the same day. And there's a lot of other evidence. He correctly provides the Japanese with information on the number of people in different concentration camps in the Far East. Now, Lyshkov publishes in a Japanese journal, Kaizo, sort of an Atlantic Monthly kind of journal, in 1939, an account of the Kirov investigation. And his account of the investigation, and remember, he interrogated um, Nikolayev's wife and many of the Zinovievites who were arrested. He was probably number two in command. Tales, dovetails exactly with the 56-57 document release. And Yushkov was strongly anti-Stalin at this point. And he is concerned with arguing that the, the show trials and so on were all kangaroo courts and false. So we've got a guy writing in in a sort of politically neutral setting sort of um, and um, just five years after – actually four years after the event and he's confirming the much later document release. And as far as I am concerned, this ice is the case that's down. Yeah,
0: and if he wanted to – if all the information he revealed, he could have easily revealed this um, and for whatever reason he didn't and perhaps because it's not the case.
1: And he does, and he doesn't, he's not covering for himself. He confesses to involvement in mass murder. So that would, there would not have, it doesn't look like there would be an obstacle for him also saying, I participated in arranging Kirov's murder or in covering it up as down crime. Well,
0: one last substantive question, because I think this is incredibly important and it's something you end your um, introduction with. and, And that is what are the historical lessons of the Kirov murder?
1: Why should we care? So, right i went out on a real limb i think at the end of the of the introduction but i do i actually believe that sometimes there are things we can learn about history they're not simple um you know the munich analogy for saddam hussein is stupid oversimplified sort of move of that sort but I think there is a lesson. The Kirov murder was understood by Stalin and arguably most of the party and even much of the Soviet population as an act of terrorism against the regime. Indeed, terrorism is what um, what the uh, what the conspirators, or I'm sorry, supposed conspirators, are charged with. And in form, I'm not talking about numbers or practices, well, or scale of practices, but in form many of the measures that have been taken in our own so-called war of terror by the government of the United States and other governments are, um, are similar. Um, the setting up of extraordinary military tribunals to try terrorists, um, with a a modified, you know, the, the right of access to counsel is, um, is relatively weak on these tribunals. It's, it's not non-existent. Um, and you know the torture techniques that are being used now folks have our you know enhanced interrogation they've argued that you know the u.s military and the and other militaries um have not been using torture they've been using things like sleep deprivation and stress positions forcing people to stay in a single position for um for hours or days, and hot, cold rooms—we expose people to extremes of heat and cold, and so on. They've been arguing this isn't torture. Torture requires beating somebody to a bloody pulp till they're almost dead. And in fact, all the techniques that we're using, um, our government is using, albeit on a much, much smaller scale—much, much smaller scale—are were standard in the Stalinist torture arsenal, and these. In other, what I argue is, I'm not arguing that the war on terror is is, uh, is even unnecessary. I think it, maybe we should be calling it something else, a war on al-Qaeda. But I do argue that this is these precedents are incredibly dangerous, and they're fundamental parts of authoritarianism. And um, conducting this kind of a war on terror, as it does, really undermines the foundations of democracy. And I have to say... Since I said it in the book, since I said use specific names in the book, I'm going to say this. I actually um, specifically um, described measures taken by the Bush administration. And I said that the, you know, it appeared Obama, when I finished the manuscript, Obama had just been inaugurated. I said that, you know, o- Obama's administration was taking steps to end some of these practices. Well, um, they haven't. And I feel quite embarrassed about that.
0: Well, I could imagine the hope. We all had hope. <laughs> Right. right, that's that. That's the that was the watchword of the day, um, right. but yeah, I, I think it's important to 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 men, Even you know, as you said, went on a limb. I think it's important to mention because it, it as far as an, inst- I mean, in in cla- in the classroom, I think the cure of murder is instructive in this way. in, in terms of how a, a regime reacts to a, an act of perceived terrorism, and how it, what always struck me too in going back to the December uh, first law is how the use of of state violence is also. Uh, Legalized yes, and I think that's incredibly important to think about the way the law, even in authoritarian place like Russia in Soviet Russia, they put down laws to to justify or to actuate what they what they carried out, and I always found that interesting at least to think about yes so well finally, uh, what are you working on now
1: I am working on a book on the experiences of Soviet soldiers in the first eight months of World War, the the Nazi invasion, particularly, uh, so basically from the frontier catastrophe through the Battle of Moscow. And I'm interested in ground level experiences, experiences of combat, um, experiences of uh, life um, close to the front. Um, I've been reading soldiers' letters, um, memoirs. And um, I'm also interested in the front as a transitional society, the retreating front as a transitional society, you, you know, constant interaction between civilian refugees and other civilians and the Red Army as they retreat. And so I will also be looking some at interactions with civilians, as, as well as support personnel, in, including women. And so, that's what I'm that's, that's my current project.
0: Well, that sounds great. I, I it's, it's, high time that you and some other people I know are kind of developing a social history of, of World War II. It's it's surely lacking. Good, thank you. Yeah, so, well, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been fun. I've been
0: speaking with Matthew Leno about his book, The Cure of Murder and Soviet History. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And until next time, goodbye. От того-то знать дом, в котором
1: мы живём, повесить. всё не соберём.